1: How is a judge going to say there's no appearance of impropriety here with all that hanging in the air on such an important case? So to me, I, I think that if there's a tie or if it's close, you err on the side of disqualification because of the importance of the case and because of the downside risk later that more evidence might come out to rebut what came out at this hearing.
2: I'm Matt Gluck, Research Fellow at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 23rd, 2024. Since a grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia, handed up an indictment in August of former President Donald Trump and 18 other defendants for their efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election in Georgia, all eyes had been on the defendants' behavior and their legal fate. That was until an explosive filing by one of the defendants, Mike Roman, alleged that Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis had engaged in a kickback scheme through a romantic relationship she had with an outside prosecutor Willis had hired to participate in the case, Nathan Wade. Roman asked the presiding judge, Scott McAfee, to disqualify Willis and her office from the election case. Willis and Wade have since acknowledged their relationship, but claim that Willis did not financially benefit from it. Last week, Judge McAfee held a two-day evidentiary hearing to determine whether Willis and Wade's relationship presented a conflict of interest, requiring the removal of Willis and her office from the case. I discussed the hearing and what's likely to happen next with Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Benjamin Wittes, Lawfare Legal Fellow and Courts Correspondent Anna Bauer, and Georgia Trial and Appellate Lawyer and Fulton County Court Watcher Andrew Fleischman. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 23rd, Breaking Down the Fireworks in Fulton County. Anna, to get us started, how did we arrive at this explosive hearing? We have this conspiracy case against the former president for trying to steal an election. And now we're talking about whether Fani Willis stores thousands of dollars of cash in her house and a prosecutor's definition of marriage. How did we get here?
3: You know, Matt, that's a question that I feel like these days I ask myself every day, especially when I randomly end up in Cobb County uh Superior Court Divorce Court. Uh, I'm kind of like, how did we get here? But there is a reason. Uh So in January, we had this motions deadline. All the pretrial motions, except for a particular category of motions, were due on January 8th, 2024. And late that day, it was the the day that Ashley Merchant, who is the defense counsel for Mike Roman, one of the people who is indicted alongside Trump, she filed this bombshell motion that alleged that Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade, the special prosecutor, were engaged in what she called an improper clandestine relationship. Uh, and that as a result, the case should be thrown out and that Fonnie Willis should be disqualified. Over the course of several weeks, there was a lot of speculation that developed because the state uh, didn't really make uh, any public statements about these allegations other than Fonnie Willis addressing the matter in a speech at church uh, in which she kind of addressed some of the factual allegations, but not really and then about a month after this motion was filed there were eight or so defendants who joined so nine in total including trump and and then the state filed its response and in that response they said that in Contrary to what had been alleged in Merchant's Motion, which was that uh, Fonnie Willis hired Nathan Wade while she was engaged in a relationship with him to serve as special prosecutor, and that she therefore had this, uh, you know, financial benefit that developed through a kind of Kickback scheme that was alleged in which Nathan Wade would be paid for working on the case, and then he would take her on these alleged luxurious vacations. And so she therefore had some kind of financial interest in the case. The state, in its response, said, No, no, uh, this relationship didn't develop until 2022 after he was appointed, and they divided all of their travel expenses when they did have personal travel together roughly evenly. Uh, so they kind of contested much some of the factual allegations and then really pushed back on the law, saying that it wasn't a conflict of interest that would be disqualifying under Georgia law. So hopefully that's a good recap of, of how we got here. Uh, and then we had this big hearing, this two-day evidentiary hearing, in which the defense they were able to make their case and try to prove up the allegations that they made in this initial motion.
2: Thank you. That's that's very helpful. So before we get into the substance of the hearing, Ben, what were the questions Judge McAfee was trying to answer during this two-day
1: evidentiary hearing?
0: Yeah. So his, uh, you know, he really narrowed the questions that the Defense was seeking to prove the defense had interests in the question of, for example, whether Nathan Wade was qualified for the position. And, you know, the judge basically said something to the effect of, in my judgment, you know, if you have a pulse and a, and a bar license, you're qualified if the, di- if the district attorney hires you. He also restricted a lot of other material, and he focused really on three questions. The first was conceded, which is, uh, was there a romantic or, or, uh, you know, some kind of intimate relationship? The second is, when did it start? And the reason that's important, uh, and actually also, it turns out there's some importance to the question of when did it end but the parameters of the relationship time-wise turn out to matter because it's a bit of a different picture. If you hire your boyfriend uh, who's then kicking back money to you, that really does begin to look like a kickback scheme. Then if you hire somebody and then sometime later you have an inter-office romance with the person, right? And so the when question was one he focused on and the third question is the question of financial entanglement is there a financial relationship such as would give rise to a conflict of interest or uh he said and he has not retracted this although it does not appear to be the uh language of the legal standard an appearance of impropriety. And so uh, those seem to be the major questions that he focused on. And he was quite assiduous in the hearing in keeping the lawyers on those questions. When they tried to veer off into other areas, he really brought them back. So those are the three key questions.
2: Ben, the defendant's motion to disqualify Willis and her office is grounded in three primary factual claims. What were those?
0: Yeah. So first of all, it's important to say what's left of the motion, because as as I said before, the defendant makes, uh, Roman makes all kinds of claims about Wade's qualifications and that sort of thing that McAfee seems uninterested in. But what's left is... Uh, the following three points of dispute that McAfee agrees with, uh, Mike Roman, uh, and his lawyer, Ashley Merchant, could, if true, give rise to a conflict. So the first is that the relationship didn't start when Nathan Wade says it started, uh, which is in 2022 in his affidavit, but in fact started back in 2019 when around the time that the two met uh, at a conference when they were uh municipal court judges so in other words that Nathan Wade and Fannie Willis's office uh who advanced this uh motion are lying about when the uh romantic relationship began uh the second key point is that they are lying about the financial relationship, which in uh, their formulation uh, is not a kind of going Dutch-like situation where she pays for some of the travel and he pays for some of the travel and it's roughly even, but it really is more like a kickback scheme. That is, she hired him and is paying him and then is directly financially benefiting from that arrangement such that, and here's the third key point, she has a financial interest in this prosecution going on for as long as possible so that uh, she can reap as much gratuity uh, from this kickback arrangement as she can, and thus she has a personal interest in the continued prosecution of uh, poor, beleaguered Mike Roman,
2: Anna, the first witness to testify on this question of timing, and the, the first witness to, to to testify in general was Robin Yurti. Who is Robin Yurti, uh, and what did she say about the timing of Willis and Wade's relationship?
3: Yeah, so Robin Yurti is a woman who is an old friend of Willis's. In Willis's later testimony, she described her as a woman who she met in college and who kind of hung out with some of the girls that Willis used to party with in Atlanta. Um, In in Robin Yurti's own testimony, she described her not as a best friend, but as a good friend. And and as their relationship, you know, developed over the years, they first met in college, uh, reconnected when the two of them were both in Atlanta, and Robin Yurti eventually ended up joining the district attorney's office in a non-attorney capacity and then we also learned in Robin Yurty's testimony however that there was a falling out in her relationship with Willis because of circumstances related to Robin Yurty's departure from the district attorney's office it's not entirely clear from her testimony exactly what those circumstances were but but we did get a sense that that uh, that her leaving the district attorney's office was a kind of, you know, either you resign or you're going to be fired and and then once she left she never spoke to Willis again. As to the timing of the relationship though, you know, again Willis and Wade had represented in their filing and then Wade had sworn in an affidavit before the hearing that the relationship did not start until 2022 after he was appointed, but Yurti's testimony contradicted or seemed to contradict that statement. She claimed that Willis, during their friendship, told her in 2019 and 2020 and 2021 that uh, Willis was engaged with in a romantic relationship with Wade. Uh, Yurti also said that she, during that time period, saw Wade and Willis in, you know, hugging, kissing, being affectionate in in the way that two romantic partners would be. And she also said that there was no doubt in her mind that they were together from the period of, you know, 2019 to the last time that she saw them in 2022. With that said, there were a few parts of her testimony that I think it's important to note uh, she was very conclusory in her responses to the defense team's questions, which were, you know, usually on direct examination. You kind of ask more open-ended questions, uh, but they were a little bit more leading questions, you know, uh, requiring a yes or no answer. And and so she was very conclusory in her responses. Uh, she was unable to really recall many details about the specifics of her conversations with Willis that were about Wade. Uh, She couldn't, you know, describe when they occurred exactly or kind of what the circumstances were or where they were or, you know, any of the details of these conversations that she said they had. And then I think one of the most uh, strange uh, moments in her testimony is when Steve Sadal, Trump's attorney, asked her, so ma'am, can, you know you testified that Willis told you these things about her romantic relationship with Wade. Is it such that these conversations were, you know, just an ongoing kind of conversation through the years between two good friends? And then she kind of inexplicably replied, I don't remember, even though just minutes earlier, she had testified that Willis told her multiple times over the years that she had been engaged in a romantic relationship with Wade. So there were some moments in that testimony that, that could uh, detract from her credibility and, and could give McAfee a reason to maybe put less weight or, or less emphasis on her testimony, although it certainly was contradictory in terms of what Willis and Wade said about the timing of the relationship.
2: But Yurti wasn't the only witness who the defense said could confirm its timeline. There was another, Terrence Bradley. Andrew, Who who is Terrence Bradley? What did he testify to? Or perhaps more importantly, what did he not say?
1: Well, Terrence Bradley is a Cobb County attorney who was longtime friends with both Ashley Merchant and the law partner of Nathan Wade. And he claimed everything he knew was privileged. That was a huge part of what he talked about. Um, it was actually a frustrating part of the proceeding because nobody made an offer of proof. Like, hey, here's what he would say, Judge, and I need to just let you decide whether or not it's privilege. And the, the state didn't really meet its burden of establishing privilege. But what he did say that was important, what came out, was that Ashley Merchant had texted him, hey, is or emailed him, hey, is this motion I filed accurate? And he said, looks good, uh, which would suggest that he thought everything in it was true. And the state's privilege objection there is really interesting, right? Because something is only privileged if it is something from the client to the attorney in the course of the attorney-client relationship. So if he said that because Nathan Way told him in the course of that, hey, we were dating before 2022, I think that creates big optics problems for the state that are really interesting. Ben, do you view that potential
2: implied conclusion uh, in the same way as Andrew? Or uh, do you think it's perhaps... Less
0: persuasive? I don't know what to make of it, to be honest. I I definitely agree with Andrew that it is an optical problem for the state because it certainly looks like there's this guy who knew everything about the relationship, was dishing fairly freely about it, then proceeds to kind of lie about that or at least to obfuscate it in his testimony. And when forced to confront text messages that he sent and emails that he sent that appeared to reflect this knowledge, he then asserts attorney-client privilege over material he was pretty freely talking about socially in a different context. So it's a, it's a terrible look for him. It's an almost as bad look for the state. But it actually is unclear to me what it means, because we don't know, first of all, what he actually knew or how he knew it. Did he know that there was an affair? He appears to have known that there was an affair. Did he know that there was an affair that started earlier than they admit? Maybe. Uh, Does he know that because... It was told to them or because of things he observed from which he drew conclusions that may or may not be true. We don't know, although he does say it's privileged. So it implies that he was told it in the context of seeking, uh, the client seeking or him giving legal advice. And, uh, his whole testimony is so cagey that it's impossible really to figure out, uh, what facts you can reasonably glean from it. I will say that there is a solution, at least a partial solution to this problem, which is that Judge McAfee probably already has talked to him in private to suss out what the privileged material is and to verify that it's privileged. And it's a little bit hard for me to imagine that Judge McAfee would turn around and credit Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis's testimony on the critical points of when the relationship began, if he had even privileged private confidence that this was not true. Remember, he gets to decide, you know, whose testimony he finds believable, and Presumably, if he knows that this relationship really did begin in 2019, he's not going to turn around and say, I find the district attorney and the uh, somewhat sketchy boyfriend's testimony entirely credible on these points, especially given that the boyfriend, Nathan Wade, does appear to have uh, lied about the relationship in his divorce proceedings. And so you have a basis there if you're inclined to disbelieve them for other reasons, i.e., the combination of uh, Robin Yurti's somewhat weak testimony and whispers from from Terence Bradley, you have a basis to say these people are not are are, are not creditable, uh, and so I I do think that there's a a way to resolve this problem if he is telling the truth and, and but i don't know what to make of his public testimony
1: uh, and may i just say i don't find this privilege claim plausible like at all the way terrence bradley talked about it so terrence bradley's version of events is that he starts representing Nathan wade in his divorce in like 2017 or 2018 like 3 or 4 years before his divorce actually happens and that they're talking about this, but there's no car, there's no retainer, there's no money exchanged, it certainly seems like whatever Bradley's source of knowledge is, it's more likely to be that he was his law partner, they were together socially, than that Nathan Wade, in the course of his divorce in 2021, told him he was with Fonnie Willis.
0: But do you agree that that's the kind of thing that in in camera proceeding with the judge, it takes about eight or ten questions to get to, And Judge McAfee is going to come out with a pretty good perception of, A, whether these claims of privilege are trivial or whether they're creditable, and B, whether the underlying material that Bradley purports to have or that Ashley Merchant purports him to have is uh, germane and undermines the testimony of both Willis and Wade.
1: I mean, I think that's what in-camera proceedings are really for. Privilege is like the one thing that it's best suited. it, And I I trust the judge to suss it out. But given how less than forthcoming Bradley was at trial, I don't know that he would be more forthcoming with the judge in a private setting. On the other hand, you know, gosh, the state went nuclear on him, didn't they? They had those witnesses lined up and the second. It looked like he was going to say the thing they didn't want. They said he had been fired from his firm for sexual assault. It's very possible. They may have angered him enough that he's going to come back now and not say it's privileged. So just uh, one of the most fascinating hearings I've ever seen in my life.
3: Yeah, I'd be really interested to hear Ben and Andrew's thoughts on that cross-examination and kind of could it backfire? Do you expect it will backfire or did it make sense within the, the circumstances?
1: Well, I think it backfired, right? Because when he said the sexual assault allegations are privileged, the judge concluded, oh, Terrence Bradley doesn't know what privilege means. I've actually cross-examined Mr. Bradley before on an ineffective assistance of counsel claim. And he gave similar sorts of answers. He was very cagey. And when I asked him why he hadn't objected to something, he said he didn't have the rules of evidence in front of him. So he's not like a technical lawyer guy. Um, So I think it backfired in that sense. And there's also a real tension, right? Either... Okay, this is privileged information that he can't disclose because he's an attorney or he's just a liar and anything he said would be made up and I don't think both those things can be true. Ben, do you do you agree?
0: I do. I mean, I think I I think that there's going to be a reckoning over Terence Bradley's testimony and it 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 has one of three shapes and I think only one of three shapes. One is the guy is lying but he doesn't really know anything that's not gossip, right? He saw some stuff. He assumed some stuff. He knows that eventually they ended up in a relationship. He doesn't actually know when it started. And so he doesn't materially contribute except in noise to to the record as it stands, in which case you might call him back, but it's not going to do anything. The second is... The guy is lying and he really does have something that undermines their testimony, in which case you call him back and you have explosive hearing part two. And then you have a record question that's much harder than the record that exists now, which is Yurdy's and Bradley together, neither of whom is a great witness, but two bad witnesses together, you know, starting to get somewhere, versus uh, Wade, who has after all been less than candid in this other proceeding, and Fonnie Willis, who now her sworn word would have to do a lot of work. Um, And then the third possibility, of course, is that the judge finds that this really is privileged and lets his judgment of other matters maybe be flavored by by what he thinks of it, but the material really doesn't come into the record.
1: Well, I, I guess what troubles me here is Nathan Wade is part of this prosecution team, and he knows 100% whether he has these privileged communications or not. So for the state to, to object and say this is privileged, what is quite possible it's not. Nathan Wade could confirm it's not. That strikes me as not full candor to the tribunal and in a way that would upset me as opposing counsel.
2: Okay, I want to turn to the testimony from Willis and Wade. Uh, so, Anna, how did District Attorney Fani Willis and Nathan Wade describe the timeline of their relationship?
3: Right. So, Nathan Wade and and Fani Willis both described the timing of their relationship very similarly. They both said that it started sometime in early 2022. So Nathan Wade was appointed as special prosecutor in November of 2021. So this would have been a few months after he was appointed. Uh, but they they did say, you know, that they had met at a judicial conference back in 2019. Uh, they were to begin with professional acquaintances and professional friends, and then you know they both kind of described over time uh, a friend that grew, grew closer both in a professional and just you know friends' capacity. They uh, Nathan Wade testified that in 2020 he got a cancer diagnosis and and so at that time he was not in a position to be dating anyone. but he did you know begin to speak with Fannie Willis more frequently during 2020 and 2021. And then of course, after he was appointed, it was then that Willis and Wade said, you know, a few months later, they began their romantic relationship. Uh, they also was, and Willis in particular, uh, they both had a very similar timeline as to the end of the relationship. Wade described it as the summer of 2023 Willis said Wade would probably say it was June or July of 2023 because he's a man, and that's when the physical aspect of their relationship ended. But as she described it, they they had the, quote, tough conversation in August of 2023. I believe she thought it was before the indictment, but it could have been around the time of the indictment, which was handed down August 13th of 2023. And so that could be something that is potentially important is that the relationship seems to have ended before the indictment was returned by the grand jury. Uh, Wade was a big part of, uh, you know, bringing that indictment and presenting the case before the grand jury. But you know, she said it had nothing to do. The end of their relationship had nothing to do. With that indictment, the in fact, she in in testimony that was not very flattering to Nathan Wade, described their differing views on uh, equality within a relationship between men and women. Uh, she said that Nathan Wade at one, at one point told her, the only thing a woman can do is make me a sandwich or, or something to that effect. Uh, so, uh, we, we got a lot of details on the timing of their relationship. And some of that seemed to be corroborated by the testimony of Willis's father, who took the stand and said that in 2019 and 2020, when the defense alleges that Willis and Wade were in a relationship, Willis, uh, in fact, had a boyfriend who was a a disc jockey that they nicknamed, I think, Deuce, and 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 Willis's father testified to seeing that boyfriend, you know, around visiting the house that he shared with Willis at the time, uh, and he did not meet Nathan Wade, he said, until 2023. So that's the picture that we got from the state's kind of testimony or were and the and the state's witnesses. in in terms of the timing of the relationship.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile.
2: Ben, you and Anna concluded in your Lawfare article on this hearing that the defense uh, did not carry its burden on the timing issue. What was your uh, reasoning for that conclusion?
0: Well, the conclusion is tentative for the reasons that uh, we were discussing earlier, which is that, you know, you could, uh, you could conclude that, uh, that there's something from Terrence Bradley's testimony that swings the picture, uh, though it's a little bit hard for me to imagine Terrence Bradley being reliable about anything. That said, um, uh, based on the current public record, uh, the way we analyzed it was the following. The only evidence that is in the record suggesting that the relationship began, uh, before Wade's Hiring as special prosecutor is the testimony of Robin Yertes, uh, which is, uh, as Anna said earlier, both vague and sort of halting. Uh, it's, it's really that this is not a great witness. And it's clear that she left the office with some enmity, uh, for Fonnie Willis and having had their friendship destroyed. And so there's reason to wonder i suppose if she's some kind of disgruntled former both friend and employee on the other side of the equation you have wade's affidavit you have his testimony uh now i uh for reasons i'm sure we'll talk about i i think there's i think wade as a witness is somewhat uh a problematic too because of these uh, interrogatories in his divorce case, which just seemed to be false. But he is corroborated on this point, both by Fannie Willis herself, whose testimony seems uh, quite credible and, uh, if unbelievable on the cash point, unbelievable but unrebutted. And it's, um, <laughs> you know, it, like I think it's that would be a flamboyant lie for her to tell. And I actually kind of – I, I believe her, actually, uh, as, as improbable as the story seems. So I, I guess I come down to you have one bad witness on one side balanced out by another bad witness on the other side and one good witness who is, by the way, corroborated in important respects by her father – who does not have direct knowledge of the relationship, but does know that she was dating somebody else in the relevant period of time, did testify that Nathan Wade never came to the house, that he never met him in the relevant period of time. And so I look at it and I say, okay, um, Ashley Merchant threw up a lot of smoke and there's a lot of reason to scratch your head and wonder about this, but if you're looking for record evidence that the relationship started other than when she and Nathan Wade says it did, there's just not very much to work with.
2: Andrew, are you in the same
1: are you in the same place on the timing issue? I mean, I, I disagree a little bit. First, I, I, the, the conclusion is tentative, of course, because evidence doesn't seem to be closed yet. I mean, Bradley could come back. There could be other evidence. Ashley Merchant was hinting in some of her cross-examination of Wade that she might have cell phone location data, uh, which would show, for instance, that maybe he was at Funny Willis's house in 2021 for extended periods of time in ways that would be difficult to explain platonically. I, I will say uh, that Robin Yerdy is a sort of witness, as a criminal defense attorney, you get very familiar with. You know, the state brings in another gang member or a former friend of somebody and they hate being there and they really don't want to testify and they're as vague as possible and prosecutors are very used to having this closing like well this person's not lying they didn't want to be here do you think that they fought tooth and nail not to be here and then perjured themselves just to hurt their friend so it's she's a bad witness but she's a bad witness in a way that prosecutors can often persuade juries is not important and while thought he Wills, I thought was actually as credible on that cash point as she could be. She was also not an appropriate witness. She did not act in the ways that I would instruct the client of mine to act. Even if I truly believed they were falsely accused, I was struck by that. And you could sort of see in Judge McAfee's body language and the way he responded to some of what Wade said, some of what Bradley said, and some of what she said, that he was like, just be normal. Just come in and be normal, please. You know, going off on tangents about how she would not embarrass a black man and... Uh, because he might have been impotent in 2021 uh, and the judge had to threaten to strike her testimony. She was, it's true. It's its baffling that she could be kind of credible and also inappropriate, but I think she struck that balance. <laughs> she managed to do it. I, I don't know. I think that if more evidence comes out, if Bradley changes his mind or, or even if he doesn't, even if you just have like, he doesn't testify, but there's some evidence that he was like maybe threatened. People told him don't testify, say it's privileged. How is a judge going to say there's no appearance of impropriety here with all that hanging in the air on such an important case? So to me, I, I think that if there's a tie or if it's close, you err on the side of disqualification because of the importance of the case and because of the downside risk later that more evidence might come out to rebut what came out at this hearing.
2: And we'll get to the, the disqualification question more squarely in terms of conclusions and how Judge McAfee might think about it. Um, But turning to the question first of financial benefit, which is the other question at issue here uh, that Ben laid out up top, Andrew, what do you view as the the key question in in terms of the financial benefits that were purportedly flowing to uh,
1: Willis and Wade? I'm not honestly sure that we have a clear question laid out in Georgia law that lets me know what's important and what's not. What I can say looking at federal rules is that if you are a federal prosecutor, you cannot take a case if someone with whom you have a strong personal relationship has a financial out- stake in the case. I would say the argument that Fani benefited financially is not that strong, but the argument that Wade benefited financially is pretty strong. Uh, he certainly secured a huge amount of money. He certainly has very suspicious billing. People focused a lot on the 24 hours thing, and Wade explained that by saying that's the date I finished. But what really struck me in the billing is there's one eight-hour period where he said he just read case summaries. And to me, the point of summarizing the case is that it doesn't take eight hours to read. There's not that many cases to read. It was such a vague response that some Georgia ethics folks have said it's like the worst billing they've ever seen. So you see this financial benefit, this sort of shady financial stuff, and she's helping someone she has a close relationship with. That's the conflict. I don't think they established that she financially benefited in a serious way.
2: Anna, could you lay out some of the details uh, of Willis and Wade testimony on the financial issue?
3: Yeah, of course. So uh, on the financial issue, I think that one of the things that was going to be very important here is for the defense team to really show that Willis had some kind of incidental benefit, at least from these vacations, that, she, that it was alleged that uh, Wade took her on. You know, there were these travel receipts that showed that Wade had booked cruises and 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 flights for them and potentially paid for uh, hotels or or that sort of thing. And I think that the total amount of all of that had uh, went to a figure over like $13,000 in, in total between, you know, for the both of them. And so th- it was going to be this question of, who is right here about whether they split those expenses evenly? and so there's not really much of a financial benefit or a kind of self-dealing kickback scheme? or is it going to be the case that you know this the defense could prove that that it wasn't split evenly and that Willis did have some kind of financial benefit? And on that point, Willis and Wade both testified that uh, she reimbursed him in cash. And uh, Willis was able to, again, this sounded quite unbelievable when Wade testified to it. It even caused one of the defendants who was in the courtroom that day, David Schaefer, to laugh very loudly, so loudly that uh, Judge McAfee uh, told him that he would be kicked out of court if he did it again. But so this claim about the cash reimbursement, it was going, it was very important. It seemed quite unbelievable. Then Willis got on the stand and she very, I, I think, convincingly, was able to explain some of the context, which is was that Wade is a guy who ha- likes to travel, has a travel agent who does bookings for him. So what he would do is call up his travel agent, have them book these vacations. And then w- Willis paid him back in cash. And as she explained it, you know, her father growing up had always told her that a woman needs to have six months of cash stored up. Uh, she kind of gave some context on the the cultural and kind of familial background as to why she often kept cash. Of course, she was not able to really explain. You know, it was this deposit, or, or excuse me, this withdrawal that I got my cash from. But it was the kind of thing where she said, over a period of months, you know, she'd go to Publix to buy her groceries and she'd get cash back and just kind of keep things uh, in her house of of that that was enough cash for her to pay pay people back for things that maybe she owed them. And she was also able to describe specific details or circumstances in which she did pay Wade back for these trips. So for example, she said that on a trip to Belize, she you know, actually gave him the money while they were in Belize. She said that when they uh, went on a trip to California, she covered some of the expenses by paying in cash for a wine tour. And subsequently, and this is not in evidence, but CNN has reported that uh, one of the employees at the winery that they went to does recall Willis paying in cash on that trip. Uh, So that is a kind of, you know, a, a summary of what we learned about these cash reimbursements. It was corroborated by Willis's father, who, like Willis, described, you know, telling his daughter to keep cash around, so I, I think that, and and again, this was something, that testimony was not rebutted in any sense by the defense. So that's important. Although they did seem to raise points about, you know, just how implausible it is that, that Willis, you know, kept this cash around, but it seems to be that she was able to convincingly provide testimony that explained, you know, why that was. So that's that's what we got on the financial benefit, and to Andrew's point, I will say that uh, you know it is true that Wade made a lot of money from this case, but that is just the nature, I think, of how the special prosecutors work in Georgia. So y- you know they bill by the hour, um, and so unless you have a different uh, financial compensation structure for special prosecutors who you know, our outside counsel that bill by the hour that our contract, the state contracts with, I'm not sure how you really get around the, the idea that, you know, this is just how special prosecutors are compensated anyway. Um, unless you can show that the Willis made different decisions in order to give Wade more money for this particular case. So that's, that's hopefully a good summary of of what's going on with the cash and Willis and Wade's testimony.
1: Andrew, would you like to jump in here? Yeah, you know, I, the one thing that's always struck me about this, about financial benefit, you know, my wife and I, we split costs. We're financially intermingled. And so I am not sure the extent to which remuneration fixes the intermingling problem. You know, are your taxes, are, are you just together? You're both paying for things because you basically pooled your resources. As for whether it affected her outcome, you know, uh, this is certainly a lengthy way that she has chosen to charge the case and bringing a special grand jury and doing the things she did. Of course, there's no wiretap, right? There's nothing where Fannie Willis says, hey, I did this because I wanted to extend it. But there's that circumstantial evidence that she picked maybe an unusually lengthy route to conviction, given that you have Donald Trump on tape saying 5,000 dead people voted, a provably false thing for which there is no evidence.
2: Ben, do you have any thoughts on on whether we can read into any of uh, Willis's prosecutorial decision-making uh, and the relationship between that decision-making and uh, this potential financial benefit?
0: I do. I I think that there is no evidence of a real financial benefit at this stage. So the question is sort of an academic one. What we know at this stage is that He spent some money and she spent some money, assuming you credit her cash reimbursement testimony on joint activity. And we have no particular reason other than that the story sounds sort of implausible to disbelieve it. And if that's the case, I think the attribution of any prosecutorial decision to go long and big, rather than to go discreet and small, uh, is a mischievous one that uh, with all due respect to defense lawyers present, uh, a defense lawyer is going to love, but a judge is not. And I do think the, uh, the right way to evaluate it, and by the way, I am not at all Certain that Fani Willis made the right decision in cha- charging this case as broadly as she did. Um, I think the day it came down, I wrote that whether it was uh, a gross overreach or t- touched by prosecutorial genius is something that we're going to have to work out with with the uh, passage of time. And I stand by that. I think it's a it's a very bold decision. And it's one that her office, we will find out whether her office is in a position to deliver on. That said, I, I really have a hard time imagining that any component of that decision was because she consciously or subconsciously made the calculation. Gosh, if, if we go big on this, we can, uh, keep Nathan in the, in billable hours for longer, and then he can go take me to, like, Belize more, and uh, I can pretend to reimburse him in cash. Like, I don't know what was behind that decision, but I'm really confident that it wasn't that. And and I'm also really confident, you know, since the relevant standard here is not whether Ben Wittes thinks it's plausible But whether the mythical reasonable person, I I don't think the mythical reasonable person, maybe the mythical reasonable defense lawyer would think that that's a reasonable chain of inference. But I don't think the the mythical reasonable non-defense lawyer would.
1: Well, we certainly do have our biases and I haven't met a reasonable one of us yet. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but uh, as a true believer, defense attorney, I'll, t- I'll take that. Uh, oftentimes I talk to people and they just think I'm taking crazy pills. We're just on different wavelengths. And I always try to talk to a conservative person before I try a case because I want to get their input on what a person might think, which is
2: helpful. So that, that's the substance of the hearing. I want to talk a bit about the relevant law. So, Andrew, what is the the, the standard for
1: disqualification under Georgia law? I don't know, is the honest answer. I've read, ca- there are cases that say appearance of propriety. There are cases that say actual conflict. Sometimes we cite to US Supreme Court opinion, but we don't directly adopt it. Sometimes it seems like I, there's there's so few cases and they have so little analysis that I truly don't know what the standard is here, have I looked at it. And I think that you could defensively go with Norm Eisen and say it's gotta be an actual conflict and a direct stake in the outcome of the case. I think you go the other direction and say if an influenced choice, arguably influenced choice is made in this, that's an appearance of impropriety and that's enough. So the, the answer is uh, upon like a few hours of study, I don't know. Ben, and the actual standard for disqualification, um, because
2: there's some ambiguity here, uh, will likely allow Judge McAvee to have some agency in determining that disqualification standard. So what do you think he will go with uh, when thinking over these issues?
0: So I'm going to defer to Anna who has done our Georgia disqualification research on the question of whether the standard is quite as unstable as Andrew describes. What I will say is I think the vi- the big variable here is what judge McAfee thinks of Terence Bradley's in camera presentation. And the the scenario in which we may see a, let's say, migration of the standard would be if he talks to Terence Bradley and concludes, wow, this guy really knows some stuff that is critical to this, but it really is privileged. And so I can't do anything with it publicly. And then I could imagine him saying, gosh, you know, there isn't evidence of an actual conflict on the record, but there sure is a lot of evidence of yuck. And so let's do a disqualification on the basis of the appearance that is fed by the smoke associated with untraceable cash, the fact that Nathan Wade appears to have lied in these other uh, proceedings, and uh the fact that You know, this is a super high profile case in which the eyes of the world are on Fulton County courts. And you could imagine something on the basis of something less than an actual conflict of interest arising out of that, whether that would be lawful under Georgia law or a a kind of a judicial puritanism activism, I leave to Anna.
3: Yeah, I and I'll say on that point, you know, my read of Georgia law is that the standard is actual conflict. Uh, Georgia courts have said in in previous cases that the standard for disqualification of an elected district attorney is actual conflict that means it has to be something a conflict of interest that's more than just theoretical or speculative you know you have to show some kind of real palpable uh financial benefit or or something some kind of you know personal interest in the case that would actually give you a real tangible conflict of interest it is true that there is some language in some cases where they talk about the appearance of impropriety. I I find it convincing, though, the argument that the state made in its brief that the occasions where courts have used that language and some of its uh, opinions, it's kind of been talking about the appearance of imp- impropriety that flows from an actual conflict and and how that in general kind of can uh, corrupt public faith in in the case. Um, so it's not necessarily that they're saying, it's enough to have a, an appearance of impropriety they're talking more generally about how conflicts of interest that are real and palpable give rise to appearances of impropriety within the mind of the public however i will also say that we had this debate already in uh you know last year or excuse me and i believe it was 2022 now because this case has been going on for so long, in 2022, there was already an effort to disqualify Fawny Willis from the case that folks might remember. It related to Georgia's now Lieutenant Governor, Bert Jones, who was a subject of her investigation when she had a special purpose grand jury and he sought to disqualify her because she held a fundraiser for his political opponent at the time and in the decision that judge mcburney handed down in which he did disqualify willis from investigating bert jones he you know had this footnote in which he says uh, you know the the prosecuting attorney's counsel submitted an amicus brief in which they argue that the standard is is actual actual conflict and he says and i agree the standard is actual conflict but and then he cites this second circuit federal case in which he says in the rarest of circumstances or the rarest of cases you can apply an appearance of impropriety standard And then he says something very confusing, which was basically... This is the rarest of cases, but also there's an actual conflict here. So it's quite confusing exactly whether McBurney was applying the actual conflict standard or whether he was applying an appearance of impropriety standard, but it's possible that Judge McAfee could look to that footnote, not as binding precedent, but certainly as something potentially persuasive and say... We've already got this, you know, Superior Court decision in which uh, a judge has said this is one of those rare cases where you could apply an appearance of impropriety standard. So that's what I'm going to do. So hopefully that clears a few things up. But in my view, actual conflict is the standard.
1: I think what's so interesting about that, too, is the state didn't seek CERT to go appeal that and, you know, maybe clarify what the standard was. Now, I don't know what their thought process is, but Fulton County appeal stuff, I wonder why they appealed all the time. So it was interesting they made the strategic decision not to do that in this case, and I don't know what to make of it. Anna, do you
2: think that the the defense, based on the timing and the financial uh, considerations, have uh, met or approached the threshold for disqualification as you see it, or did, did uh, they not really come close?
3: I I don't think that they've met their burden. And Ben and I write this in our piece that, uh, that, where we analyze the evidence that we don't think that at this time they have met the standard of disqualification. I think that to do that, they either needed to show that the state had been lying about the timing of the relationship. That itself, I don't think, would generate a conflict of interest in the way that it was originally described in the motion. But it certainly would be the kind of thing if the state had been lying about the timing of the relationship, then that is something that would provide a heavy presumption that there is an actual conflict of interest or even itself be independently disqualifying, just because these are officers of the court, they have the power of the state behind them, and and should not be lying in uh, the context of any kind of you know under oath uh, proceeding, but especially the, in the context of the case that they are prosecuting. And then on the financial benefit part, i I also don't think the state has you know shouldered its burden. Uh, For the reasons that we kind of went through about finding Willis's testimony corroborated by her father, pretty compelling in terms of, you know, the cash reimbursements. I'm also not even totally convinced that even if she didn't reimburse him for those vacations, that that would necessarily itself show a financial benefit that is substantial enough to cause or give rise to a true conflict of interest. So yeah, I, I don't think at this time the state has shouldered its burden, but Ben and I both write and and believe in this piece that we wrote that, you know, Terrence Bradley, what happens in that in-camera Meeting with Judge McAfee could change the calculus a bit. So uh, I think that it depends on whether the evidence is going to be reopened, what happens in in that in camera session, and we would reevaluate our position based on you know what we learn from that.
2: And I, Andrew, I want to get your take on this too. But before I do that, so there's this question of disqualification, and then and then there's the prudential question. Um, about whether Nathan Wade should be removed from the case. So could you could you describe that consideration and how it differs from the disqualification
1: question? Well, disqualifying Fonny Willis disqualifies the whole office, but is there a motion even in place to disqualify just Nathan Wade? I'm not sure that's even an option available to the judge.
0: No, there isn't. And, 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 and that's why we framed it in the piece as something that Fonny Willis should do or that Nathan Wade himself should do. Look, the problem, the the issue for Nathan Wade here, and I, I I accept that he appears to have made a, a, a substantial contribution to the development of this case in the special purpose grand jury and in the investigative stage. But he is now on the record in his divorce proceeding. I'm going to say this a little bit more baldly than we did in the piece, flatly lying in response to two or more interrogatories. And, um, and they concern the relationship with Fonnie Willis that is at issue in, in this part of the case. Given that he is simply not in our judgment anyway, a plausible member of the prosecutorial team in a case that is notionally about, you know, the big lie and election interference. You know, you want a prosecutorial team that the defense can't argue uh, or that a reasonable juror can't, won't look at and say, hey, you know, he's misled a court himself. And I I just think under those circumstances, he's not a Credible member of this team anymore, and he needs to be removed. And that should be something that's obvious to him. uh, And he should step aside. And failing that, I know she has a lot of regard for him, but Fonnie Willis is the head of that office and is responsible for the integrity of the team. And she needs to take Nathan Wade off that team. And none of that has all that much to do with the pending motion but it has become obvious in the context of the uh, existing uh, litigation over this motion. And I would also add that, you know, his explanation of the false answers to interrogatories in his uh, testimony last week, in this case, really strained credulity. Um, And I just think under those circumstances, it's It's a grave error on the office's part to leave him in place, irrespective of whether it amounts to a disqualification uh, under either this motion, which it doesn't, or some future motion.
1: Uh, You know, admitting fault is just not part of the culture of this office. Um, I don't know if you know the bizarre for justice story, but there was a Supreme Court of Georgia opinion, this is during Paul Howard's tenure, that found that the office had made an argument that was bizarre. And the district attorney had all his appellate attorneys wear a shirt that said bizarre for justice and then did like a thing on on Facebook and on Twitter talking about it, like a campaign ad. And I'm not saying that Fannie Willis is the same person, but has sort of that same attitude that her office is right and no one's going to tell them what to do. That makes it, I just can't imagine her making that choice. Though I've been wrong about people before. Well,
0: all I, I will it. say about that is that if she doesn't make that choice, uh, she is opening herself up to a thousand Trump truth socials about a lying prosecutor uh, that will not be as false as most of his, uh, his truths.
3: And, but to that end, I mean, I, I, what I can see, however, is even if maybe she realizes that this is a, uh, something she needs to deal with at some point, There is a question of timing because I wonder if maybe one of the issues with or things being discussed within that office is, you know, if Nathan Wade is removed from the case or, you know, if if she fires him um, or accepts a resignation, it kind of implies that there was some kind of wrongdoing that relates to the relationship and the original allegations as opposed to you know what we're we're making the argument here about his credibility being damaged because of his testimony that was not credible regarding the interrogatory responses right so there's two separate issues but she might be concerned by the perception that Nathan Wade stepping down is kind of almost an admission that there was an appearance of impropriety related to the relationship itself
1: and you can't unskunk the jury box, really. Once they've got that idea, that's already going to be part of the trial. They're already going to be arguing it whether Wade is there or not.
2: And Andrew, I'll give you the last word here. What do you think about the, both the disqualification question and whether, wh- not, not necessarily whether uh, Fannie Willis will remove Wade, but whether uh, she has a responsibility to do so based on what's come out in the interrogatories
1: and elsewhere? It would probably be wise for her to take some remedial steps, but I just don't see it happening. As for whether disqualification should happen, you know, again, I'm a defense attorney. I'm not reasonable. I've got a strong bias. But I think that if a judge is having to make credibility questions about whether the prosecutor or the DA are telling the truth in this case, that is just, that hangs a pall over it. That's hard for me to get over, it, even though maybe lots of regular people would be fine with it.
2: We will have to leave it there. Andrew, Ben, Anna, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other shows, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly